We all know the importance of stepping back every now and then and asking if our day-to-day -day actions are taking us closer to our goals. And those of us in the social sector work hard daily to deliver on our promises to stakeholders. But in the long term, are we always achieving our desired results? As a CPIA or Certified Professional Impact Analyst, you'll have the tools to enhance the impact of your programs. Participants in the CPIA program learn to identify their impact, use innovative financing to maximize it, and measure and evaluate their impact in a meaningful way. With a teaching team that includes academics and practitioners, the three week-long courses will give participants the skills they need to make a difference and set their organizations apart. The CPIA program at Queen's University is for anyone serious about maximizing their impact beyond the financial bottom line. Sign up for our 2019 courses today at cpia.queensu.ca. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Impact Investing Podcast. Today's guest is Upkar Aurora, who is CEO of Rally Assets, which is an impact investment advisory firm that's looking to mobilize all forms of capital to accelerate social progress. So Upkar, welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you on. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Yeah. So first things first, you, uh, Rally Assets, I'll get you to first talk a little bit about it, but just as a heads up, because some listeners may know the firm better as Purpose Capital, and it recently had a sort of a rebranding and that's pretty exciting. So tell us a little bit about Rally Assets. Sure. So as you said, uh, Rally Assets in its predecessor form was called Purpose Capital, and it's been around really as one of the initial leaders in the impact investing space almost 10 years ago. And then back in late last year, we decided to embark on a different strategy, which meant that we needed to evolve. And as a result of that evolution and strategy, we decided to change the name of the company to more fully reflect the direction we were going in. And that direction really involved moving from what we've traditionally done as a consulting or advisory firm, moving into asset management and moving into the public markets, where previously our focus had been primarily private markets. So building on the 10-year history, the incredible track record, the expertise in the team, and then evolving that into providing more services to our clients to be an integrated service offering, including asset management. There's a lot of information in there. We're going to unpack a, a lot of that as we go through today. But you know, if I'm going to sort of distill that, you know, my understanding from Purpose, and I didn't come to it right, I wasn't super familiar with it from sort of day one, but um, was doing a lot of sort of working with maybe it's you know, foundations, family offices, advising on how they could sort of make impact investments and set up policies, procedures, have an investment policy statement that reflected that and sort of make that transition. And, and you would help them to do that. And now it's sort of shifting more to the advisory role where you can actually manage the assets for clients. Instead of them doing it with your advice, you're sort of doing it for them, for those who want assets managed. And you're probably expanding the scope of the clientele you might work with. And it sounded like in there, you talked about expanding to, to public market securities rather than 
exclusively focused on maybe exclusively is too strong a word, but the private market securities where I think most impact investments today tend to still fall in that space. Is that a, sort of a fair? Yeah, you no, know, David, that's certainly fair. And maybe it might be helpful just to maybe create certain categories or buckets of that that help really animate that. So when we first started out, we were really focused on two things. One is just the, sort of the education and awareness of what was impact investing. As you know, the phrase got coined, I think, in 2010, is coming on 10 years. So what was impact investing? What did it mean? And then the second part is, how do we develop a strategy for engaging in impact investing? As you can probably guess, the organizations that were most interested in that were actually organizations were, that were predisposed to being philanthropically minded. They were already doing granting. They were focused on social issues. They were trying to think about systemic challenges. And they were trying to look at impact investing, essentially catalyzing more capital in different ways to make more significant change. And so certainly our early work was really to those organizations, often foundations, in terms of educating and awareness, developing a strategy, trying to get a deeper dive into what is impact, how do we measure it, and then ultimately providing some alternatives for how that could take place, the implementation side. And the piece that we are engaged in getting registered for now that we can't do is actually advising clients to invest in certain investments. And that's a regulated sector that we need approval for. So we could offer alternatives but not make investment decisions. And then we could not take on their capital to go invest for them in those investments that they wanted to participate in. And as you correctly point out, a lot of the impact-oriented investments have historically been in the private space as opposed to in the public space. And so it's really that continuum of services that we have historically provided. And the one additional note I would provide is that Purpose Capital also realized that when we were talking to clients who were interested in investing, often they would face situations where they wanted to invest in enterprises, but the enterprises didn't really know how to be ready to take on that capital, how to actually provide some degree of assessment of what impact was, how to report against that and so forth. And so historically, it's also focused on providing services to ventures or enterprises as well. And as we move forward, we're focusing not as much or not really on those, but really focusing on those parties that wish to invest their capital in alignment with their values, which means how to invest in anywhere from ESG, responsible investing, social responsible investing, or ultimately impact investing alternatives. That's helpful. What's interesting to me, and I'm, I'm interested for your perspective from Raleigh's um, perspective, is just you speak to a lot of investors who are interested in this space. I'm curious what you see in here as an organization from those who are like this, investors who are making impact investments are really on the vanguard, right? I mean, it's, as you say, the, the term's only been around 10 years. The industry's probably been longer than that but before the term was actually coined, but that's still really new compared to <laughs> traditional investments. And so you, Rally has a really a finger on the pulse, I would argue, in Canada of like, what are people seeing and feeling? What are their challenges, issues, struggles? And I suspect this relates to the strategy and for how you've sort of adjusted a little bit from the strategy that uh, had under purpose. But what do you sort of see in here? Are there major themes or trends among the impact investors that Rally works with? Yes, certainly, David, and some of the other speakers you've had on the podcast, I think, would probably echo some of these. But let's start with the macro, what we are seeing from a macro standpoint in terms of where people want to invest. We're seeing, ultimately, this concept of a massive intergenerational wealth transfer. That wealth transfer, then, is going to the next generation, whether that generation is actually millennials or the boomer generation. 
there is a greater orientation to those parties, those cohorts wanting to invest in alignment with their values, having a different perspective than the generation that created the wealth as they start to begin to receive that wealth. And research has shown that whether it's in that cohort of millennials or actually as women start to have more influence and more power and more decision-making about where to invest dollars, they tend to invest more in alignment with social purpose or values and actually for the longer term. So we're seeing that trend become magnified over the last little while. And then if we look to where people are putting their money, we're seeing a fundamental change in terms of how people perceive corporations. And as you and I have both seen, whether it's Larry Fink at Block, BlackRock, or you can actually go back to 1985 with Raj Sisodia and uh, firms of endearment and conscious capitalism as a movement, but we're seeing greater traction, greater focus, and greater scrutiny about how firms behave and the need for firms to operate in a different way than they were operating 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. So what are those major changes? Well, first of all, the changes first and foremost are moving from a concept of organizations need to be in business for the purpose of profit generation for the benefit of shareholders, where we've seen that change to stakeholders. We've seen an orientation to moving towards from short-term to long-term. We've seen elements of the importance of how you treat people, whether it's your employees, your customers, your suppliers, being integral to an organization's long-term sustainability. And we've seen certainly greater focus over the last five or seven years as a result of the focus on climate change, the importance of what are we doing as it relates to the planet and the externalities, the negative externalities, the consequences of our actions with respect to the planet that we all need to survive and thrive on. And so all those things are happening in that segment of the market. So organizations are being forced to become a little bit more thoughtful and deliberate about how they behave who they're responding to, for what time orientation. And at the same time, we're seeing the parties with capital putting money into organizations that are behaving more responsibly or thinking through some of the implications of their actions in a much broader context. The context and the terminology that you and I have both seen is double bottom line or triple bottom line. But thinking about what are those organizations generating, and it has to be more than short-term maximization of profit for shareholders. And so those macro trends are sort of creating a confluence of the parties with capital and the parties needing capital are actually changing the dynamics of how we view the goal of investment, how we view capitalism per se, and causing players that we would never have imagined 15 years ago to come out very, very deliberately and say, no, it needs to be more than profit. It needs to be thoughtful about the implications to people and to the planet and to have a purpose. And then the last piece I would say is that the other element we've seen from a demographic standpoint is that greater representation in the workforce. Now we have five generations working in the workforce, but the most significant generation or cohort is millennials. By 2023 or 2025, some 60 to 75% of the workforce is going to be constituted by millennials. And when we think about that cohort specifically, so my kids' generation, my kids are 22 and 24, they really think about working for an organization in a very different way than I thought about it. They think about what are a corporation's values? How does it behave? How does it treat people? How does it deal with planet? You know, how ethical is its supply chain? And does it strive to do more than just deliver profit? And so that influence of people who are working, the influence of uh, parties with capital, investors who are putting in capital, and the need for capital by companies. And finally, I would say, the last piece that I think we need to focus on is where people purchase their goods. And so 
people are behaving in a way that says, I believe in X and I will choose to exercise that X. The planet, so buying electric vehicles or not engaging in or with organizations that generate a lot of waste or packaging because they believe in the issues of plastic in our oceans or something. So they're behaving in a way that's more in alignment with what they believe. So I look at those four or five external sort of dynamics, macro dynamics, all moving us towards this is not a fad, this is not a trend, this is actually a change fundamentally in how we approach investing, how companies are run, how they need to attract, engage, and retain people, and how they need to deliver to a broader set of constituents more than just shareholders in isolation. Yeah, that's, again, there's a lot we can we could dive into there. I'm curious, stuck out to me, you know, the money is starting to shift, right? Like, Real investment dollars. I mean, we can talk about consumerist trends in you know segments of the population, and millennials is a big segment. But you know, like real investment dollars and even institutional money is starting to move. In the grand scheme of things, both institutional retail, the just money in general. How far into that sort of trend are we? Is this like just the very beginning? Are we halfway through that transition? Like, how prominent do you think that is writ large? So David, maybe measured against where it's come from, we're seeing significant growth rates. And so the numbers, I think, in the AUM numbers I, I saw for, I think it was responsible investing, went from $227 billion to $500 billion over the course of one year. And if you go back five years, that number might have been 50. So massive, massive capital flows are changing towards whether you call it responsible investing or sustainable investing or some forms of thinking more than just about short-term return maximization. So in one way, we could be really proud of ourselves and say it's a massive systemic shift. But then if you look at it against the pool of available capital, the market capitalization of companies, and also I think we have to bring into the equation the influence of private equity, which is a market capitalization we don't really see in the movement of public companies to private, I think it's just a pittance. It's a small little uh, you know, starting point, and we need to do much, much more. So I see it as still at the early stage of a wave, but much bigger than it has been over five years with that exponential growth compounding. But I still see it as we've got a long way to go. And ultimately, I think the measure is actually not about separation of, you know, how do we classify responsible or sustainable or impact or so forth, but how do we embed that thought process into every single investment decision so that it doesn't need to be a separate category? We don't need to say, hey, there's the mainstream and then there's the outside of the mainstream. How do we embed it into the mainstream so it becomes fundamental to investment decision-making? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all really interesting. I think, as you say, the percentage, that if you take a look at the total socially responsible or responsible investments compared to the total pool of investable assets, it's, it's a drop in the bucket. Sometimes when you're in this space, it feels like, oh, everybody's doing this. Yeah. <laughs> but it, as you say, it's a small start. I think the other thing that's interesting there is this idea of not viewing these as different things. I find that in this space, there's a lot of collisions of things that were seen as two discrete functions or more than, more than that sometimes that are what we're realizing now is that they are just one spectrum. And so I think about that as like impact versus risk-adjusted returns. And those aren't necessarily always have to be traded off for one another, but you know sometimes they are. But this that you're generally recognizing that all investments have an impact. There aren't such things as, oh, these investments have impact and these don't. They all do. The only question is, is it positive or negative and to what degree? So that's sort of like a collision of these sort of discrete 
buckets. I see that on the granting side and investment side. Like these are just two opposite ends of how you deploy capital and what type of financial return you're taking versus what type of maybe social or environmental return you're generating from the deployment of that capital. So I don't know if you've got sort of thoughts on it. It feels to me like this space is a smashing together of a whole bunch of different worlds. And we're still sort of figuring out the implications of that and feeling our way rambling a bit, but it feels like blinders. For me, it feels like blinders have been taken off. It's like the world doesn't have to be so, it isn't so um, narrowly defined. And there's a lot more possibilities than we've been exploring in the past. Yeah, David, I would agree with you. And in many ways that is happening, but I think there's also, you're pointing to one of the systemic issues about why it's not happening more quickly in that we still do have labels. I mean, even the basic labels, if I said to you, I'm a charity versus a for-profit corporation, that evokes certain images of what that means. And if I'm a hardcore capitalist, that might evoke images of inefficient, uh, left-leaning, tree-hugging you know, environmentalists. And if I'm a, work, a person working in the charitable sector, that might mean that I think of corporations as greedy, damage-causing, you know, whatever. So I think there's still issues related to how we perceive labels and terminology. There's still issues as it relates to you know, when we think about your example of granting, so much charitable organization, at the end of the day, what we really want to do as an organization is to have impact in a meaningful way. We start to think about it as granting versus investing, and we have two separate groups. One's focused on an investment lens versus a granting lens. I think we run the risk of not actually being true to our core purpose, which is actually to benefit an organization that's doing great work to solve a social issue or an environmental issue. And so I think we still have a ways to go to thinking about what's our true purpose or goal in what we're striving to do. And how do we think about that in a way that doesn't rely on traditional silos, functional responsibilities, and thinks about what it is we're trying to achieve, as opposed to what we want to protect and preserve in our respective domains. So you asked earlier, so I'm just going to touch, sort of connected to what you asked earlier, Yes, the capital that's been flowing into the sector has been those organizations that are more philanthropically minded, that see the benefit of this, that see the benefit of actually trying to catalyze systems change as opposed to symptoms. But the real opportunity, I think, is to think about this in why isn't everyone doing it? And why is it in their best interest to be doing this? And isn't that the larger pool of capital? If you actually look at the pool of capital in corporations versus governments versus charities, there is no question the potential pool of capital, the potential to have significant impact is actually in the corporate sector. And so how do we make sure that we do this in a way that is not siloed, but actually engages all forms of investors and all forms of organizations? I think we may have talked about this, but a great example that I like to think about is Chade Mang Tan, who wrote a book called Search Inside Yourself. And in that book, he talks about in his 20% time at Google as one of the early employees of Google, he said that what he wanted to achieve was to change the conditions for world peace or something really, really big. And he said, you know, it's going to take a lot of effort and more than 20% of my time to really achieve that. But he's a practitioner of mindfulness and meditation. And what he concluded was one of the ways to do that is if we can make mindfulness and meditation, bring that into the corporate sector, create more effective leaders that are making better decisions, that are are concerned with more empathy and with people, then we'll actually will create the conditions for world peace. And so he chose and recognized the incredible influence of companies to be able to catalyze that change by using that as a vehicle as opposed to outside of the mainstream. 
Now, some might argue, you know, Buckminster Fuller's got a quote about if we really want to change the system, we have to basically, you know, abandon that system and create a brand new one. I actually choose to believe that we need to work within the system and outside of the system to try to get more change happening. Because if we marginalize the sector that could have the potential for the greatest impact, we'll be a very long time before we actually achieve the kind of scale that we're looking for by abandoning that sector. Mm-hmm. I think podcast listeners, if they're listening to all the episodes, might get tired of me saying this eventually, but if you read Winners Take All, uh, I have. yeah, I'm curious for your thoughts on this idea of like, I think the central thesis in that is this sort of idea of working within the system, um, perpetuating a broken system that is subverting the sort of democratic process and allowing private organizations and individuals to effectively make decisions about you know what social issues get funded rather than the collective, the people deciding through a democratic process to how to allocate and what gets funded and what issues get solved and in the manner in which they get solved. And so it sounds to me like what you're saying is you kind of need to do both. You need to work on the system, but you also, you know, if you only do that, then you're giving up a lot of opportunity and a lot of people are suffering. In the meantime, when we could be solving some problems, is that sort of your take on? It is. Um, it is in part. And uh, I think the binary, yes, it's one or the other. I don't think it's really valid because even in his approach of we need to reinforce the democratic institutions, build trust and have people, a public and civic engagement process to get people going. I mean, the reality, if you think about why the philanthropists he talks about are taking initiative in ways that do not rely on those institutions, often it's around the fact that those institutions are fundamentally broken as well. And Mm so I find the reversion back to this this almost this nostalgic era where governments were working perfectly and then people with uber wealth decided that doesn't matter that they wanted to do things on their own. It's to me a little bit simplistic. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think we need to be doing both. I do believe that we need to reinforce those institutions so we don't make this essentially a decision-making process that's the few are driving the policy decisions for the many without a democratic or participative engagement process by the many. So it's being done to people as opposed to with people. So I certainly believe in that. But I'm not one who wants to point the finger at someone And I would characterize most of the people I've met in this space um, and some of the uber philanthropists that I've had experience with, the Paul Reichmans, the Peter Monks, the Jerry Schwartz of the world. I mean, they're starting off with genuine belief that what they are doing is going to make a difference and it can make a difference. I don't believe they're starting off with the premise that, hey, I need to do this for some nefarious underlying motivation. And so I don't think we can sort of uh, paint all people with the same brush. I think we have to recognize that generosity comes in many forms and can take many avenues to how to leverage it. So I think we need you to be doing both, but I don't think we can be as judgmental or as critical of one or the other. Yeah. And I'm pausing here just because this is such a fascinating conversation. I just genuinely enjoying it selfishly because I, I've wrestled with that book a lot. I think what you just described describes what was my sort of genuine interest in doing and good and sort of switching from the traditional investment space into this space for that reason. With the, you know, Anand's thesis in the book did for me was just like, oh, right, there are ways which we can, I think this is what he would argue is like, there are ways in which you can pursue like socially responsible for profit, you know, market world that prop up and continue to propagate a bad system and undermine democracy. Or there are ways in which you can do it that do prop up democracy and that do undermine the negative aspects of what he calls market world in the book. And and so being mindful of that, I mean, for me, I wasn't even aware, I wasn't even thinking about, right, are there ways in which 
we're propagating a bad system or the negative aspects of the bad system. And so like, even though it wasn't intentional, like there's nothing nefarious, that is part of it for some people, I think, is they're just not thinking about it. You're steeped in one way of looking at the world, which is, and you, well, I want to get to this after, which because your background is fascinating. Um, I would say like you are right in the heart of just pure free market capitalism. And so you know better than, than me, but sometimes you can't see it because you're just so focused on that way. Does that resonate for you or do you think that it's still... Yeah, David, and I would agree with that. I would share some of the same, I think, observations you and I had and we were talking about earlier as well and maybe connect those. But first, I think it's a very important book. I think it's really, really essential that we don't get so smug in what we do Mm -hmm. that we aren't open to criticism from the outside. And I think for me, even though there are many parts of that book where I see myself, the way you've described it, which I come from the corporate sector, as does the author and as do many of the people he talks about, I certainly can't describe to the level of wealth that he describes with many of the people in that book, but I do come from the corporate sector. And so I see myself in many ways, and yet I don't see myself in many ways in the portrayal of the, the profile and the image he, he presents. And we can talk about that as we go. But so I do think it's a really important way to look at ourselves and be just go back to first principles of why we're doing what we're doing, how we're doing it, what are the unintended consequences? Are we trying to reinforce the core pillars of some of the democratic institutions? Are we trying to empower versus disempower? Are we getting the right people in the rooms, in, on, in the tables that we're trying to, we're purporting to help people, but we're not engaging them in the discussion about do they want to be helped? In what way? What would be a value? So I think all those are really, really important things to keep reminding ourselves to doing it better. And by the way, that view that Tanand portrays, you may have read another book called uh, The Givers, where uh, I think it's by David Chiltern as well, where he talks talks similarly about the incredible influence and power that the uber philanthropists have in terms of the amount of money they give away and both the intentional and unintentional consequences of that. So abused or misused, it can certainly lead to the wrong outcome. So it is important to have that mirror that allows us to self-reflect and be aware and still strive to do better. Cool. That's awesome. That's an interesting, I think that's a, I mean, I agree with that. And I, I do think, interestingly, I, this is an aside, a complete aside, uh, that's one of the coolest things to happen to me for a while. So I tweeted that I was reading the book and tagged Anand in the, in the tweet and ended up having a conversation with somebody on Twitter who is like, you know, talking about the book and uh, he had ended up kind of liking that and following me. And I ended up getting into like a direct message conversation with him on Twitter. And, and he had seen in the conversation that we were having on Twitter, that what I had said in the conversation was uh, my team world vision, we were, we all read this book and it's caused all of us to really take a long, hard look at ourselves in the mirror and our work and think about, are we guilty of some of the worst aspects of that he kind of portrays in the book and how can we avoid those things? And uh, anyway, he offered to join that, like dial in via FaceTime. And, you know, we had a kind of a 20 minute kind of Q&A and got his thoughts on that. And and I think that he would probably agree with what you're saying right now. Um, You know, that there are ways, not everybody has to just quit what they're doing and stop, throw everything to the wind and go, you know, protest in the streets. Because there's, you can stop the bleeding. Uh, You know, that's, that's valuable too, while we're working on the systems change or the propping up, uh, repairing the democratic systems. So anyway, I think that's a really healthy perspective you brought. David, I'm going to segue that into another sort of conversation we touched on before the podcast, Hmm. which is that I sort of bring into the conversation, which is, I think many of us, you included, and the people we deal with on a day-to-day basis, whether it's at plan or in the social impact space, 
There's a concept in the world I came from in real estate, which is highest and best use, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to apply our skills, experiences, our talents, our capabilities, our gifts to the highest and best use. And so if the right answer was to go work with government for the next five years, I can tell you, I would have so little patience to do that. That would not be applying my experiences to the highest and best use. And you and I spoke briefly about the fact that when we went to school, there wasn't a way to say, hey, there's a social enterprise, a social finance program you graduate with. You know, so we haven't come up through looking at the various options for where do we get that experience? We've come up in worlds through the finance world that I came up with. What were your choices? You worked in investment banking, commercial banking, private equity, maybe, or VC, and in consulting, right? Those were the choices, professional services organizations. So when we've come up through that, I've spent 25 or 30 years in that milieu, and then I try to apply my skills, the best skills I have, frankly, it's not to go serve in a food bank. It's actually to do something that leverages my skills and experiences in a way that might be more impactful in the experience or skill set or expertise that I have. And so we are in this inflection point about the people that are trying to do change also have been brought up in a world where the options for doing that on a perhaps more diversified, uh, greater number of possibilities was not there. And so we're trying to apply our skills in the best way we know how to have the kind of change, which happens to revert back to the traditional way that we have lived our professional careers. And so that's reality. And it's trying to apply those skills in a way that can, in fact, have change with, again, the thoughtful or deliberateness or intention uh, that we strive to, to do. So I think, in effect, it is a valid criticism, but it's not valid because those were the only options available to us, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Can you talk a little bit about your your history and your kind of, like, You've got a fascinating sort of you know origin story from where you're kind of born and raised, but also your kind of work history. It's really interesting. You've worked with some really interesting people. Sure. And so maybe what I'll touch on through that history without boring you with a lot of the details is maybe some of the more formative elements of the background. I was sort of born in India. My dad, my parents moved away to England when I was two again, for the classic immigrant you know, story about getting a better education. And so while we were in London, my dad was working on getting his CA. And then uh, in 1970, when I was about eight years old, he got an offer with Canada Revenue Agency to come to Canada because it was a shortage of CAs. And so uh, he was offered a placement. They gave him three cities to choose from, Winnipeg, Sudbury, and London, where he had the opportunity where there were tax offices. He chose London, and all of us ended up moving to London, Ontario. So I was about eight when I came to Canada. In many ways, my story as an immigrant is very, very typical. The unique aspects of my story perhaps are, so the typical aspects are trying to make a new life, you know, not really fitting in, uh, not having a lot of money or connections or networks. As you know, with many immigrant stories, there's a high degree of emphasis on education. And so we grew up in London, but my parents were really trying to establish themselves, but grew up in an area which, if you go back to London in the 1970s, was a relatively homogenous, relatively, I'm going to say, non-diversified city. And so what the, what does that mean? So I was the only person of a visible minority in my class at school, and so stuck out like a sore thumb, had constant challenges about fitting in. I thought I knew how to speak English but it was British English, not Canadian English. And so my pronunciation even was off. So I was sort of ridiculed and mocked for that. 
And so the classic challenges of growing up where you are certainly an outsider, you're certainly different, you're easily identifiable as a visible minority was really formative in terms of understanding a perspective from the other side, from the other, from the outside versus the inside. And so that was formative. And during that process, though, the other formative thing for me was seeing my mom despite not making very much money and we were sort of didn't have a lot of money, would always take 10% of her money, put it into a separate bank account, and would always commit to donating that to charity on the belief and the premise that there were always people that needed it more than we did. And so seeing that, despite not having very much, sort of left a very strong imprint, really indelible imprint on the importance of community and giving back and support. And so that was really formative. So if I fast forward you know, many years from there, went to school in London and then went to University of Waterloo, my first co-op work terms were in London with KPMG, and we did the audit of a lot of hospitals, the London, St. Joe's, Sarnia, Windsor, all the hospitals in the region, that was our specialty. And sort of my early days of thinking about my career were, I knew I wanted to work in business or finance, I'll go get my CA and I'll go work in a hospital. And why? Because hospitals save lives, they provide health services to the community, they do good, and therefore I can still work in finance and still work at a hospital. And then due to a few conversations, sort of got dislodged from that path to focus a little bit more on the corporate sector at the strong suggestion of someone that I respected when I was younger. And so went through a more classic for-profit route. So grad got my CA, KPMG, Nortel Networks, which at the time was the you know, Canada's high-tech darling. If you can believe it, I had a market cap of $250 billion at its peak before basically falling into bankruptcy, I think in the early 2000s, but worked at Nortel. And the interesting thing about Nortel was, again, and this was a pattern for me, is seeing things from the inside versus seeing things from the outside. So things from the outside, Nortel was absolutely, it would be the equivalent of our Google or Facebook in today's world, the place that people wanted to work. They hired the brightest and the best, put them through a, a rigorous management program, gave them opportunities, moved them around, global operations, research, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff. And then seeing it from the inside, realized like, it was a very slow-moving, bureaucratic, it was unionized, which meant there were certain impediments to how it could operate and so forth. And working at the most profitable plant, which was in Bramley, that made giant switches, I realized that that view from the outside versus the inside of how things really happened was quite stark. And as a result, despite the environment being really incredibly fun and social and, and young and vibrant, decided that I really wasn't learning very much. And this is sort of an interesting story. When the opportunity came from a headhunter to say, hey, would you be interested in joining this Canadian company? It's a conglomerate run by five senior people, uh, global, rapidly growing. They need someone in finance. I'd actually said, oh, that must be Onyx. And so I prepped for the interview with Onyx. And I went into this interview and I met a guy named Andrew Jones from Olympia, New York. So I had the wrong company, but all the characteristics moved me <laughs> right. to working with Onyx. So anyway, I worked in finance at Olympia, New York. And you know, the things I'd highlight at Olympia, New York were just this incredible, from a growth standpoint, an opportunity to learn about a company that was doing leading edge finance, investment, global in nature. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So Ken Leung, my boss, did the first interest rate swap in Canada in 1986. Uh-huh. I spent the better part of a year working with BMO to try to document, hey, what did we just do? What is this product? How do we document it? What are the risks? And you know, then it just was series after series, a cross-currency yen-denominated swap 
done in Japan, in Japanese yen, secured by billions in the U.S. to fund the Canadian operation. I mean, it was just unbelievable leading edge finance and having the opportunity to work closely with a group of people was incredibly, incredibly rewarding. And that got magnified actually when Olympia York went into bankruptcy in, in 1992, where the senior executives were no longer running the company as a result of that. And I sort of was able to step up because I was the only person left standing amongst a couple other people who knew something about the company and managing through the recapitalization was compressing 10 years of learning, working with the same people like uh, Jerry Greenwald, who did the Chrysler bankruptcy restructuring along with Steve Miller and James Wolfenson and Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan. I mean, you know, David Brown, dealing with these people who were the stalwarts and the leading players in the industry was just phenomenally, phenomenally beneficial and to that me. Olympia New York is a Reichman family, right? And that's correct. Global property developer. I'm not super, super familiar, but I think that like that bankruptcy proceeding. So you were there through that. That was like kind of late 80s, early 90s. And that was, wasn't it have anything to do with Canary Wharf in the, the UK? Yeah. They sort of taken on that development and it led to a lot of the financial problems. Was that? David, that's right. And only because the date is stamped in my memory. It was May 14th, 1992 is when we filed for bankruptcy protection, May 28th in the UK. So those who don't know Olympia New York in Toronto, first Canadian place, tallest building in the Commonwealth when developed in 1974, an Olympia New York building in New York, World Financial Center that housed American Express, Lehman Brothers, Oppenheimer, Dow Jones was built by the Reichman family through Olympia New York. And in London, the next World Financial Center, Canary Wharf, which now I think they have about 180,000 people that work at Canary Wharf, was a development that was started in the late 80s by Olympia New York as well. Why, why was that so problematic for them? Was it just take a lot longer to develop that area than they anticipated? I'm just curious why that was such a financially catastrophic sort of development for... Yeah. So I think summing up books and Harvard Business School cases in about you know 30 seconds, I would tell you... <laughs> okay, it's, it's complex. <laughs> it's complex. But I would say there were three main things. One is they were involved in industries that were incredibly capital intensive and we went through a recession in the early 90s. So Abitibi Price, Gulf Canada Resources, and the real estate are incredibly capital intensive businesses, which meant that they needed a lot of liquidity and capital resources. And it all came crashing together in terms of the recession. The second is... Mm-hmm. The transportation, which was promised, wasn't delivered on time, and therefore there was a lot of resistance to moving out of the city, both because it was ingrained in the culture and the thinking, but also because transportation is a big issue. That was number two. And the third was Paul Reichman's vision was probably 10 years ahead of his time and needed more capital to sustain it during a period when there wasn't the certainty of having tenants and being able to finance construction. We were running construction that roughly it was about $80 million a month, so a billion dollars a year. And Paul wanted to build the entire foundation and infrastructure for all about 15 million square feet of development at the outset rather than on a phased basis. And so it meant a lot of capital was required. And we didn't really have the liquidity and the resources during that period of recession uh, to really finance that. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to make you go down a big no. rabbit hole, but that's, that's really, really interesting. I've interrupted you, but Oh, so let me sort of fast forward. Uh, So I joined Paul Reichman directly to rebuild his empire through Reichman International. And then as a result of another formative event, which was having my daughter in 1994, decided that I couldn't work the kind of hours and the lifestyle I needed. And so I ended up working with uh, Peter Monk, who had just bought another real estate company called Trizec. 
Um, again, a great experience in Toronto, moved out to California to run the retail division, a high-end shopping center portfolio, and then ultimately to Europe to become CFO of their European operation, where the mandate was to build the biggest pan-European property company in Europe, which Peter was trying to do. And then uh, joined Onyx to start up the, eventually, 13 years yeah, later. Yeah, you ended up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> having read a lot about them about you know 10 years prior, um, worked at Onyx to start up their small cap fund called OnCap Investment Partners, which has done really, really well with a very strong, capable team at, at OnCap, although I didn't stay that long. I decided that I wanted to do something after Onyx that was, I had a little bit more control and autonomy and flexibility. And as a result, I ended up creating a boutique advisory firm, sort of a merchant bank that focused on providing advice to organizations, capital as a finance operations and strategy, and spent a number of years doing that. And through that process, we were able to work with some great companies, but also ended up buying five companies ourselves and working on turning them around, building them, and ultimately exiting them, which gave me you know, some great direct entrepreneurial experience, having to make payroll, having to hire, having to fire, having to focus on strategy, customers, clients, suppliers, and so forth. Valuable lessons learned through that process. And I think that's one of the things in terms of being able to relate to businesses now was really being in that role and understanding the complexities, the challenges, as opposed to, again, that outsider versus insider look. I just saw too many, I'm going to call them investment bankers that have never actually run a business, been in a business, certainly have very strong views about how that should be done, but not really understanding the dynamics, complexities, and nuances of how to do that. So, hmm. so that was a great learning experience. And then more recently, um, started to shift, uh, probably about coming to the question you've asked, why impact investing, probably shifted uh, my thinking. As we went through that, the more success we had, the more it felt that I was really doing this, what I'd call running parallel tracks. And so through that belief that I outlined about giving back and contributing, I'd always done the, we'll call it the for-profit work, but then spent time volunteering, a big brother coaching soccer, and, you know, contributing philanthropically to charities that I believed in. But it was always separate from what I did in my day job. And then the more success we had financially in the companies that we were involved with, and we had massive success in some of those organizations, kind of reflected back and said, you know, the question was, but whose lives did we change at the end of the day? Do we actually change People, did they do something differently? Were they better off? Were they able to send their kids to school now versus... And so, yes, you could argue we did things in a way that actually created jobs for people and therefore we were doing good in some way. But I was looking for something a little bit more direct and meaningful. And I was looking for that to come from not just going out and seeing a big brother or little brother once a week or donating to a charity or setting up a scholarship, but to do, doing that more directly. And so in sort of 2008, 2009, started to think about how could I integrate those two? The joke I use, it's like the Robert Frost poem about two roads diverged upon a wood. And I was trying to reintegrate them in some way to say, what about trying to do something every day in my day job that actually does something that provides economic and social or community benefit? And that started me down the path of looking at this whole space of impact investing. And I thought about charities and I just couldn't see myself in those roles having actually dealt with a lot of charities, but I could see myself in a role where again, I could take my experience and bring it to bear and have an impact and hopefully benefit people economically and socially. That sort of got me into the impact investing space. And when did you, and how did you come across Purpose? I came across Purpose through that search and I started to dabble and make some investments in this space, community bonds, um, a social impact bond, uh, some thermal storage company, thinking about how to invest my capital, started to do that, started to, to dabble in the space. And then a couple of years ago, I met someone who connected me to one of the co-founders of Purpose. 
and there were three co-founders, Norm Tosevsky, Asaf, and Karim. They were all looking to do something a little bit different after having taken purpose and built it up over seven or eight years. And so the timing appeared right to be able to use that as a vehicle or a platform on which to build, given that they had so much historical experience working with clients, um, understanding the space, a great reputation. And so there was an opportunity to acquire Purpose about a, a year and nine months ago. And so I, I did that. And then we rebranded back in November to Rally Assets. Very cool. That's really interesting. And so how far along are you? You've described at the outset the sort of shift in strategy. How far along are you sort of in that process of making that change and being sort of in the place that you want Rally to be? I think we're quite far along in some ways, and we're just at the beginning in some ways. So the quite far along is that if you think about the core components, we have now developed and refined our strategy. We've built a great team. We've hired a, a CIO. You may know Andrea Nempton joined us from Inspirit Foundation. Mark Foran joined us from BCI as our CIO. We've got a fantastic impact measurement person. And those new individuals are building on the strength and capability of people like Kelly Goatee, who have been with us for nine years and Bring such an incredible array of depth of experience and knowledge again. And just, you know, pointing out Kelly came from Mercer, you know, so think about her background and how effective she's been in understanding that world as it relates to our clients. So we've got a great team, so a really strong foundation in terms of team. So that's fantastic. We have applied to the Ontario Securities Commission for approval as a portfolio manager, which is the next big hurdle. We're in the throes of going back and forth with the OSC. We expect that to be shortly. That will allow us to do the the actual investment. And we've been talking and effectively trying to co-curate sort of the next stages in our evolution with the parties that have a very strong, genuine interest in seeing a strong intermediary like ourselves come into the sector to actually provide the same level of quality and discipline and rigor one would see in the conventional financial markets, but applied to both financial and the impact side. And so we're working with them as sort of core anchor clients in developing the client base, and I'm going to call it somewhat the offering product and service offering that would allow us to go to market once we get the approval process. So in a sense, we have done a lot, I think, in the last 12 or 18 months. But at the end of the day, we're just beginning our journey because we technically are not allowed to, nor do we have any assets under management today. And we do want to build that asset under management business the asset under advisory business where we can advise on clients as to their entire portfolios and the impact they're having in their portfolios. So we're moving towards being able to do that while still continuing to do what we've always done. So the advisory services on education, awareness, development of a strategy, implementation, impact measurement, uh, you know, reporting, all that stuff we're continuing to do and ultimately want to evolve those clients to providing a complete comprehensive one-stop shop type of offering to those clients so they can outsource what they can't currently do, don't have the capacity to do, or looking to many parties to do, they can do that through all one player. So talk a little bit about then who's your target market, what's a typical client look like on maybe the AUA or the AUM side of things, and do they differ? So our target market, and we've sort of broken it down into uh, sort of the short-term, mid-term, and long-term. In the short term, it certainly would continue to be the clients we've historically served. So the foundation clients we have served over the past few years, and we're doing a lot of work through PFC and CFC with trying to reach those clients, for example. 
we would continue to serve the high net worth individuals that have a very strong desire to invest with impact. We're trying to focus a little bit more on family offices or OCIOs. And the reason for that is many people have approached us with the following problem that they have. They have a problem in the sense that, remember the dynamics we talked about, the intergenerational wealth transfer? So many of these OCIOs are concerned about how do they, as the trusted advisor to a family, stay relevant as the wealth passes from the creator to the next generation. If they can't talk the language, if they don't understand social purpose, if they don't understand values alignment, how do they do that? And so they've come to us and said, we don't have any capability in this area. We're getting asked by our clients or our families, especially a younger generation, of how to address this issue. And we want you to help us do that. So we're getting more demand and interest from those parties in being their outsourced, we'll call it their impact CIO, that they can turn their clients' money in part two for us to evaluate and to ultimately invest. So there's a family office market. And ultimately, where we could see ourselves is actually in the world of the pension funds as well. Well, we could see ourselves developing, I'm going to say, with no criticism intended, authentic, impact-oriented products in the public markets for a retail audience. Ideally, we should be giving people more choice to be able to do that, not only to those accredited investors or large institutional clients, but how do we make uh, people uh, enable them to make investment decisions the same way they would make a purchase decision, really simply, really easily, really authentically, and give them the peace of mind that their money is doing good as opposed to doing bad. It's interesting. That's, that's Yeah. I mean, on that side of the kind of institutional side, I think that's where you're sort of looking at more like longer term. And I suspect that a lot to do with needing a track record um, behind you. Yeah, I know. I mean, Joe Kelly on your your firm would probably have a real good insight into that for given our background with Mercer, but kind of like not until you have sort of a four-year track record or you're probably sort of hitting the screens of a lot of institutional money managers. That sort of the philosophy is start to build up that track record and then be able to tackle the a larger institutional market? So David, the track record issue is certainly an issue. I won't deny that. And certainly, depending on the nature of the institution, the level of risk aversion, also whether the parties who are making the decisions are investing their own capital versus other parties' capital, whether a fiduciary, whether they are a fiduciary or not, has an impact on their decision-making as to whether they're prepared to move money to us. So where we are trying to focus a little bit of our energies is on those parties that have the following characteristics. One is they know us from before and the kind of work that we've done and the reputation we have. The second is people are prepared to do what they call carve-offs, which is a portion of their capital would go towards us. So it would be the impact portion and we could invest it alongside their investments in other mainstream investment through their other asset managers or portfolio managers. So we could get a carve off. The third is people who have ultimate discretion about how to invest their money and they want to do it. So an individual that says, I'm really interested in a certain theme, cause, or mission, I want to go invest in that. I want to be engaged in that. I want to be involved in that. We could certainly animate and catalyze that because they are only doing it because they want to work with a party who has the credibility, the rigor, the discipline to actually demonstrate that impact is being achieved, for example. So we could certainly work with those parties. And so through a combination of working with those parties and moving from Carvoff to Fuller. And then by the way, the other thing we could do you know, relatively quickly is without taking assets under management and needing a track record is be able to assess the impact in 
institutions' portfolios. And, you know, I think you've seen and we've both seen stories about how a pension fund wakes up one day and realizes they're invested in Bushmaster, which killed 26 people at Sandy Hook, not realizing that where their money's gone is perpetuating. It's an important maybe segue into thinking about some of those organizations that ultimately are trying to do things in a positive way, don't know what their capital is doing. But even if you think about foundations or other institutions or other parties that grant money. So let's take an example. Do you actually invest in when you give money as a philanthropist, if you're a foundation or an individual, do you invest in certain causes and then your assets, your other 97% of funds or 100% of where you're investing is actually perpetuating the issue you're trying to solve through your granting? So how do we try to make those a little bit more coherent in some way so that you can amplify your impact? We're not saying don't give, but give in a way that your investment is not compounding the problem you're trying to solve and give in a way where you can change the root cause, the systemic issues, not just the operational short-term nature of the issues that you're using your granting dollars to do. So I think there's lots of opportunities within those parties, clients, pools of capital to make significant inroads and develop the track record over time to attract the larger institutional pools of capital that are more risk averse. Yeah, as that's all. That's really interesting. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think you guys are putting yourselves in a really good position to capitalize on a massive you know, change in the flow of capital um, and, and to be thinking about these things. You know, interesting on that kind of last point, uh, which I love, and I see it a lot through kind of my kind wealth hat and working with individuals and their finances is like, and it's a younger demographic, so kind of 30 to 50 year olds, and they just proportionally care about their investments and the impact that they're having. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because as you say, like, let's take something like, for instance, you know, you care about environmentalism and animal welfare or things like that. Like, and you're going out and you're donating to World Wildlife Fund, for instance, and then right. you're investing in a big food retailer that, you know, doesn't sustainably source fish. And so like, or you're allocating money to those that do and disproportionately rewarding, you know, and collectively we start disproportionately rewarding those, or at least putting the pressure on organizations to start to do it. Because if you have, this is a real example of where like, you know, I think it was Loblaws that had worked with World Wildlife Fund and made a decision to just sustainably source all their fish. And like, that's a massive impact that you can have. And so if you can reward, so it's, I love what you say about sort of making sure that you're not counteracting the good that you're doing by the investments you're making or the other way is your the investments are supporting the good that you're doing with your philanthropic dollars. You know, using that as an example and sort of just leveraging off that example, at the end of the day, it's a very personal decision. And what we're trying to do is not say, our view prevails and you should do what we want. It's let us provide you with the choice to actually do what you want. And you know, we got into a heated discussion a couple of days ago on our, our team about things like, so you could take a look and say, so Burger King now has talked about an alignment with Impossible Foods to bring plant-based burgers into Burger King. So you know, some people herald that as this is fantastic because plant-based foods are more sustainable from an environmental standpoint than, than meat products. And that's fantastic. Some people say, this is Burger King, one of the bigger contributors to obesity and poor dietary habits that lead to a whole host of implications from a healthcare standpoint in terms of blood pressure and diabetes and obesity and a heart and stroke. So you could say, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You could point to A&W's partnership with uh, Beyond Meat. But you know what's interesting about that is I think we concluded that Burger King would not have done that, but for A&W's partnership and the phenomenal publicity and the phenomenal following it's generated, 
as a result of their introduction of a plant-based burger. And so is that a good thing? I actually look at and say, I think it's a positive. And so if that positive, the same way you described the ethical sourcing for Loblaws, if that leads to them being exposed to an alternative that might in fact be better, that might respond to customer or client demands or needs better, they may it may cause them to look at their entire supply chain and say, where else could we be doing this and responding to the marketplace demand? So I think those are positive steps. They do come, it's not black and white. They do yeah. contribute in some ways to uh, things that aren't necessarily positive for sure. Yeah, I mean, because as you say, I mean, you know, and I use Loblaws and Loblaws certainly has its fair share of things you can criticize about the way they do business. And you can look at it and say, is this a really... What a wonderful thing that this organization has done or, hey, they profited off of a problem that they've helped to create and now they're going to try to profit off of the solution to that problem. And so you can look at that from a very cynical or a very, I tend to skew positive in my thinking and optimistic in my thinking. So I tend to sort of say, well, an organization may not be perfect, but I think it is better for the world that we sustainably source fish. And if Loblaws is going to profit off of it, maybe I don't love it. Maybe I still don't love Loblaws as an investment, but I think that's a positive development. And so, yeah, we want more of that stuff to happen, even if it means a, a bad business that doesn't actually care about making, and I don't know that Loblaws is this way, but like theoretically, if you had a bad business who didn't care at all about making the world better and was only doing it to profit, still at the end of the day, at least that's better than the alternative, which is no change in profit maximization. So, right. Yeah, yeah, and I think that comment you made, we sort of talk about that a lot about progress, not perfection. Mm-hmm. If you want to look for and criticize, you certainly could find ways to criticize virtually every company because no company is perfect. But directionally, intentionality, authenticity, I think go a long way to achieving some degree of progress, which people, especially if you are a bellwether organization, a halo organization like a McDonald's with its commitment to free range chickens or ethical sourcing in its supply chain, all those things I think are important catalysts for other people thinking about how they could also go about doing that, or will they be put at a disadvantage by not following practice in certain areas? Yeah, 100%. This is going to get into a pretty technical question. Um, I'm also mindful of of time here, but it's an important one. Two sort of things. I'll focus on one. How do you think about measuring your impact and being able to sort of report on that? This is an area that I think the entire industry grapples with, especially because you're trying to quantify sometimes very unrelated impacts um, in a way that's sort of easily to communicate and relatable across comparing an impact on, I don't know, education versus healthcare versus anything else. And I'm curious how, what rallies, how you sort of tackle that and think about it. So I think the way we're thinking about it is we're trying to do the following. As you know, there has become an evolution towards the overarching frameworks of the sustainable development goals as a framing mechanism of what areas we want to focus on, what areas we want to have impact on. So we're trying to stay responsive to that because people are using that as a way to describe where their focus is and where their energies are going. The other thing we're looking at is actually developing and have worked on uh, developing our own impact measurement framework where we would actually start to develop a methodology that would incorporate a number of factors that would be much more robust and much more disciplined and rigorous relative to other data sets that are out there. So You can certainly do some screening with data sets like MSCI, Sustainable Analytics. We can use some Bloomberg data. But I don't think those start to capture some of the deeper impacts that we're trying to capture. 
some of the measures use things like percentage of revenue contribution from doing good versus or you know, in a certain thematic area. So we're trying to get a little bit deeper and a little bit behind that. And then develop a, a framework that says we are able to create a dashboard across certain key indicators that give us a sense of whether this organization is in fact meeting the impact requirements that we believe is necessary to justify an investment. So that would be a proprietary process, but what it is going to do is integrate and create connection points to both the SDGs, the impact measurement frameworks, and other frameworks out there to make sure that we can relate what we're doing to what other parties are doing to try to create some degree of consistency in the approach. How we go about measuring and weighting and the specific factors might be unique to us, but they still ultimately need to demonstrate in a way that we are having impact. Now, what I've just said is actually quite complicated. And in the for-profit world, we've got one measure, which is profitability that defines and everyone focuses on maybe a single measure, whether it's P ratio for valuation or, or something else. We don't have that capability at this time, and we want to integrate return and impact metrics. So already it's more complicated, and impact is not defined universally the same way, so we've got those challenges. But I do think through greater rigor, discipline, and consistency, greater connection to the other frameworks out there, we can start to develop more consistency in terminology and start to portray impact in a way that investors can understand. Um, Having said that, the caveats are there is still a lot of data we'd love to have that is not available. There's starting to become more disclosure, as you know, in the TCFD climate change disclosure requirements. Uh, SASB, et cetera, they're starting to become more disclosure, but there isn't a high level of disclosure in certain impact areas um, that we are going to see more of over the time. The consistency, relevance, timeliness of that disclosure may be problematic. So we're trying to think about, again, coming back to the earlier comment about rigor, discipline, quality, authenticity, progress, not perfection, building it and refining it as we go and making sure we don't have the arrogance to think that our methodology is going to be the world's best and everyone's going to gravitate to that. I'd love to see that happen in five or seven years. When Rally puts its stamp on impact, it means something, credibility, authenticity, discipline, rigor, and gives people confidence and trust that they don't need to go behind and see all the, you know, the detail mechanics of that. We're not there yet. We'd love to build that. But it is going to be a process by which we evolve to try to create that. And then our challenge will be to simplify that enough with a dashboard or a tool as you may know, um, you know, the RISE Fund was talking about through their, I think it's Y Analytics, creating a single measure of impact multiple of money as a metric. The thinking that I'm seeing now and the feedback I'm seeing is that a single measure is going to be really problematic across all sectors. You just can't possibly capture the nuances. So it does need to be different for different sectors or themes or areas. So I'm not answering your question very succinctly other than to say, We think it's a complicated process that we need to make simple. We need to present it in a way that's understandable, but that understanding needs to convey a sense of rigor, discipline, and authenticity that's measured by perhaps by all those things we talk about, but revenue and operational impact as well, so that it's fulsome, it's not a check-the-box approach, and that people can rely on that rating or assessment to actually have confidence in the decisions they're making, recognizing they will not be perfect. I'm going to make a statement and I'll parlay into a final question. You know, I think a lot about, because I sort of deliberately, I think very relatively early in my finance investment career, made this sort of switch and pretty abruptly um, left it. 
for the space. I think a lot about not allowing the the worst habits of the pure for-profit investment world um, find its way into the impact investment space because I think I, mean, I think we have to be vigilant against it because it will if we if we allow it. And so you know, you're talking about you know this idea of coming up with a single metric for I think you're suggesting that Rise was, was talking about and the limitations of a sing, any single metric. And I think a lot about that makes me think about my experience at Morningstar, which is where I spent most of my career right. evaluating professional money managers. And Morningstar was best known for its ubiquitous um, Morningstar rating. And this was a I represented an analyst team that evaluated funds and sort of took into account all the things that we thought one should when you're evaluating a professional money manager, both qualitative and quantitative. And then we had this ubiquitous star rating, which everybody knew about, which was purely quantitative. And it essentially boiled, was a ranking of how well a fund had performed on a risk-adjusted basis relative to the other funds like it. So, but it got you down to one specific, it was just a, a representation of a, of a number, which is a star rating in a lot of ways was the bane of our existence as, as analysts because it was so, for all the benefit it brought, there were some real unintended consequences, which was people want simplicity. They want to look at a single number and say, is this good or bad? And they don't want the nuance and the details. And then they would, and flows of capital meaningfully are affected by whether a fund gets a five-star or one-star rating or anything in between. And there are lots of times when a five-star fund doesn't deserve to, you know, money and there's because you've just oversimplified something. So it can be a useful tool, but people use it as a buy or sell indicator when all it was ever intended to do was give you a little snapshot of one particular aspect of a fund as part of your broader due diligence. And people would you know, substitute it as their due diligence. And I, right. I can see the same thing happening in an impact space where you reduce all of this complexity into a single metric and people go, great, this is easy. I know that this is having an impact. Good, I don't have to do any research. And now all money is flowing into organizations that are gaming the system, right? Now you know what the rules are. Right. Okay, great. What? How do we prop up our rating? So I would sort of echo your concerns around uh, the simplicity of a single rating. And David, if you extend that and think about what's happening now, and you've seen it as well in the ESG world, is that it happened in CSR that the companies with the high CSR ratings actually had policies and procedures and checklists and so forth. But those weren't the companies that were actually doing anything necessarily about the real implications of their business operations, right? So there is a concern about the simpler you make it, the easier it is to game the system. If you don't look behind what they're really doing versus what they're saying they're doing, it's problematic. That's one major flaw. The second major flaw, which again, we see consistently is the ratings are point-in-time estimates, right? But do we actually want to reward companies or organizations that are have done stuff retroactively or those that are prospectively changing their models to do something better? Do we want to actually get more people invested with encouraging? You know what encouraging the capital markets means, more capital, which means lower cost of capital, which means greater ability to engage in projects that meet your hurdle rate of return. So if we actually want to change the nature of capital and the cost of capital, don't we want to be rewarding those companies that are moving direction towards doing things better as opposed to rewarding companies that have achieved mm -hmm. a certain rating per se? So both directionality, both in terms of prospective versus retroactive, again, in terms of trying to game the system through a simplistic oriented check the box that doesn't look beneath the surface can be problematic for sure. But I think the one thing I would say relative to what you said is, but we in this space need to do a better job of not talking inside baseball and talking in a language that doesn't resonate with people who are outsiders to the space by making it sound overly complex. But we do need to make sure 
that we do the right homework, but translate that into an understanding in the right way without relying on jargon and terminology and so forth. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think we're all guilty of it to some degree, some of us more than others. I do try to fight it, but yeah, it's a a problem. I agree with that wholeheartedly. So last question, riffing off that note, are there other areas, are there unintended consequences that you see to impact investing or bad habits that are starting to form or areas where you'd be sort of guarding against we got to be careful that this doesn't happen. Um, if, we're, if we're sort of self being sort of self-critical of our industry, how would you, what's an, something that's on your radar? Yeah, so maybe I'd touch on, uh, just thinking there may be three or four key things that come to mind. The first is we have to make sure we don't become smug and uh, judgy about what other people are doing. Uh, so that would be one. The se- and that goes to our conversation about winners take all. The second thing is, I think we have to be really deliberate and conscious about bringing people from outside of the space into the space and being ambassadors for them to learn about the space. And sometimes we're guilty of, you know, we have conferences where the same people show up at every conference and talk about the same issues and isn't the world terrible and there's not enough capital and all the other stuff. We have to have to be really conscious about bringing other parties who are not sophisticated and making sure that we try to bring them along so that they can become significant players in the sector. That would be two. The third is I think we do have a problem with trying to get greater consistency in terminology, language, definitions, and so forth. And so so that we're talking at cross purposes when we talk in complex ways. I think that would be the third major thing. And the fourth is I think we have to be really diligent in our focus on what we deliver from a quality standpoint, a rigor, discipline, and authenticity standpoint. So we don't allow people to rely on a relatively low level of diligence or scrutiny or oversight to essentially capitalize on the macro trends without doing the real work, which is fundamentally changing the way you think about your business, bringing purpose in, bringing planet in, engaging people, you know, justifying your social license in some way. Um, we have to make sure we don't let companies, organizations off the hook by doing that simplistically and through a checkbox compliance-oriented approach by making sure our diligence, our oversight, our scrutiny is actually very, very thoughtful and gets to the core of what organizations are doing. And then maybe the last thing I'll say is, and we need to reward companies and recognize companies, organizations, a social purpose organizations that are doing things really well and spread those stories in a very easy to understand storytelling way. We call them stories of impact as opposed to getting lost in the abstract theory of why this is a good thing, whether it's for return or for the greater good. So. Love it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you very much for that, uh, Abkara. And I really appreciate you coming on and, and chatting about Rally. I'm real excited to see uh, the continued developments there. I love that that's the way you're thinking about those things and positioning Rally for being guardians of, of that, right? And not letting, as you say, you know, businesses sort of capitalize on this without doing the dirt, you know, the real work that needs to be done. So that's, I love it. Well, thank you so much, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. And I should say that we are just, you know, we absolutely beholden to all those people, Bill Young and, you know, Hamilton Community Foundation, all those others that have come before us that have really blazed the way. And, you know, we owe an incredible debt of gratitude to the the other people you've had on your podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Who are actually inspirational leaders who have been there before us, for sure. Just quickly, if people want to find Rally Assets, the website is at rallyassets.com. Com. Great. Correct. That's right. I'll link to it in the show notes. And uh, yeah, uh, they can find you there. And thanks a lot, Upcar, and we'll chat soon. Great. Thanks, David. Nice to have a conversation with you. Thank you. Take care.
Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.